show up, the darkness has to flee. That there is nothing that can stand before you in your strength and your goodness. And so everything that we bring in here with us this morning, stuff that feels difficult or weighty or problematic or too big, we're so grateful that you stand with us in it and there is nothing we face that we face alone because you are with us. And for that, we are so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, can we thank our worship team for leading us this morning? Yes. All right. Hey, we're in our third week on talking about what the Bible says about women and men in Scripture. And this was just supposed to be one sermon on Mother's Day and foolish me, right now we're in week three. There might be a week four. I'll let you guys vote. You showed up on Memorial Day weekend. I think you guys get to vote. Next week, do you want me to tackle um, what does the Bible mean when it says wives submit to your husbands? That'll be dicey. That'll be fun, right? <clears throat> or, or should we start our new series on David, right? So if you want to do... The series on David, you go ahead and raise your hand. You, this is your reward for showing up. You want to do David next week? Get a couple. How many of you say, okay, let's do the submit to your wives thing? Okay, here we go. You asked for it. We'll have the, the number of plenty of marriage counselors on hand. Isaac, can you give me a few extra names to refer them to? Yeah, okay. You're not doing marriage counseling there right now, right? No, okay, good. Yeah, he's individual counseling only. All right, so this week restricts the roles of women inside the church. Um, so I'm going to ask you again, like the last couple of weeks, man, I, my hat's off to you guys because I'm asking you to think really hard. These are some deeper kind of study pieces here. Um, and, and I want to start by looking at that question because there are places in the New Testament where it looks like women are restricted by what they can and can't do. So before we get to that big question, we're going to start out talking about... Um, Here's a big Bible study guy word. Uh, the hermeneutical principle of the interpretation of Scripture. That's just kind of a Bible nerd way of saying, how do we fi figure out the meaning of certain Bible verses, okay? So that's what we're going to do, and this is going to be a fair amount of work, so stay with me, okay? <clears throat> okay? Oh, you guys are scaring me a little bit here. All right. All right, so here we go. This is one of the things that's important for us to know as we personally read and interpret and try to understand what scripture says. So let's say we want to understand the Bible and what the Bible as a whole teaches on a certain topic, um, like in the example we'll use is slavery. We want to know what the Bible as a whole says about slavery. And so um, John Ortberg says, to reach a biblical position on any subject, you must make a decision about what might be called the preponderance of evidence in scripture. So not just looking at one passage, but what does all of scripture say? So some people have said in the past, you know, hey, well, people say today, right? The scripture just contradicts itself all over the place. And, and I can agree, right? It, it looks like uh, oftentimes when we look at the Bible with our, you know, our Western American worldview, it seems like there's all these contradictory passages sometimes. And personally, I think that if we just keep digging, most of the time, um, maybe even all the time, I can satisfy and reconcile those passages that seem like they contradict at, at face value. So when we're learning to study the Bible and study scripture and looking for what the Bible teaches on a topic, we have to look for that phrase, right, the preponderance of evidence, especially when it comes to complex issues. So here's an example with slavery. First Peter 
chapter 2, verse 18, Peter writes, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. And then he goes on. Now, there's other verses in the New Testament that are similar to this. And think and imagine back here in the U.S., back to the days of slavery in the South, 150-ish years ago, um, Southern Christians would look at a verse like that and say, hey, well, it's right there in the Bible. Slaves obey your masters. So there, the Bible's pro-slavery, right? And, and, you know, that's one of the positions that we'd be held at. Um, and that's kind of a problem, actually, right? Because the Bible doesn't actually say anywhere, hey, slavery is a bad institution, so get rid of it. And that would have totally made the discussion much easier, right? But because that was never there, um, people that were on the side of slavery uh, would interpret that verse to say, well, no, the Bible's pro-slavery. Now, in interesting, um, if you just happened conveniently to be benefiting from the work of slaves, funny how that works, that that would be the one you gravitate toward, right? Um, kind of how convenient it is sometimes for men to interpret scripture and insist that men are to be in charge at church. So, okay, back, back here to the, the other part here. Um, so on the one hand, the Bible was used to seem pro-slavery, but on the other hand, the great moral force behind abolition, the elimination of slavery, was overwhelmingly Christian. It was led by Christians like William Wilberforce in England and in the USA, Charles Finney and Sojourner Truth and Jonathan Blanchard. And they devoted their lives to the cause of freeing the slaves. And the reason they did it was because of their Christian faith and their interpretation of what that same Bible teaches. But they looked at what the Bible teaches overall. They looked at the preponderance of evidence in Scripture, which is actually a phrase from William Wilberforce that we'll see in a second here. They believe that when you looked at the whole of Scripture, it led to the conclusion that all human beings need to be free. And they would appeal to, hey, this is what overall scripture says. And so you think about it, maybe like a, a giant scale. On the one side of the scale that you're trying to weigh it out, you've got verse like, you know, 1 Peter 2.18, that appears to be pro-slavery. But then on the other side, there's so much scripture all through the Bible, so many principles that show us that all human life is valuable and all human beings are created in the image of God like we all carry his dignity and through the Old Testament prophets that burned with righteous indignation with God's hatred for oppression and injustice and that weighs the scale some more right or in in the book of Acts in the New Testament we see this radical equality in the early church as they become the family of God together or in the book of Philemon where Paul writes to to uh, Philemon about his runaway slave. He says, hey, receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. So he, there's so much that is on the side of dignity. Or, or in Galatians 3, verse 28, Paul writes, now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So these Christian leaders, they fought for freedom, and they said, William Wilberforce, in fact, said, if you look at the preponderance of evidence in Scripture, if you take into account the whole text, if you study to show yourself a workman who rightly divides God's word of truth, then clearly slavery is not consistent with God's will for the human race. And us today, now that we're out of that era, we look back and we would say, of course, of course that's right. Of course that is the morally right and Christian thing to do. 
So that's just one example, right? And historically, there have been several complex arguments about what the Bible teaches. Slavery is one of those. Um, polygamy has been one of those. Uh, some people have used the Bible to support what was called the divine right of kings to rule. And all of those complex arguments, we have to look at that whole of what Scripture teaches, the preponderance of evidence of Scripture. Now, with that in mind, this brings us to the issue of men and women, because there isn't anywhere in the Bible that says, for example, patriarchy is a bad institution, get rid of it. And listen, I know that this is a complex discussion, and on a Sunday morning in this amount of time, it's really hard to get to all this stuff, and so we won't, and I know that really intelligent and, and um, wonderful Christians disagree about this. Uh, and f listen, for, for lots of theological issues, there are Christians that disagree, and, and we here at Hope and, and in the Evangelical Covenant, um, we disagree, we, we're like, hey, you know what, there's stuff that we don't have to take a position on, like the end times, things that, you know, uh, generally, um, you need to know, if you're new around here, that as a church and a denomination, if there's an issue where well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians disagree in the Evangelical Covenant Church, we generally don't take a formal stance one way or the other, Unless, unless it involves a practice where we believe that we must take a stance, and this is one of those things where every church has to decide, will we place restrictions on women in exercising their gifts? And so I believe in our denomination and this church and our leadership and elders, we believe that when you take into account the whole of Scripture, that the, the clear preponderance of evidence is that God's plan for the human race is that we be a community of men and women who share equally in the giftings of the Holy Spirit because we're made in the image of God, and so we share equally the ministry of the church. And so when we look at the, the role of women in the New Testament church, which we're going to spend some time looking at today, and when we look at the passages about spiritual gifts... There's no mention of distinctions based on gender. I mean, just at what we saw there in Galatians 3.28. We look at that, and I believe that the clear preponderance of evidence in Scripture is for the full participation of both men and women in ministry. Now, another good part of, of studying the Bible and knowing what it means. Um, is for us to know the context and the original audience of the story. And so for the New Testament, the New Testament was primarily written to three different um, cultures and people, groups, worldviews. So first there were the Jews, and we hit on this last week, so I'll sum up the Jewish mindset toward women. Um, first century Israel, no people group was more oppressed than women. They had virtually no rights, no respect, no voice, and essentially were the property of men. And again, last week I said, um, it sounds like, you know, recent Afghanistan under the Taliban. Um, Jewish women, they couldn't speak to men in public. They were required to wear veils whenever they were outside their homes. It was very difficult to be a woman in first century Judaism. So the second group uh, that the Bible, New Testament was written to is the Romans. Now, Romans weren't as restricted as the Jewish Women, although in Roman culture, for women, the authority of the father was supreme, and so uh, a Roman girl was, quote-unquote, sold into the hands of her future husband. That's how it worked. Um, in Roman culture, both 
Sons and daughters were educated, boys until they were 17, girls till they were 13, at which point they were expected to get married. A Roman woman could not conduct business in her own name. She could get a family member to kind of act with her on it, though, and be an agent. Um, women did have, in Roman culture, the right to divorce. They did have inheritance rights, but they weren't permitted to hold public office or vote. Um, Roman matrons, um, they had power and influence, but mostly because the Roman citizens, the men were always off fighting Caesar's wars and the army, so those women would run things while he was gone. No wonder they were successful. Um, and uh, so there you go. Roman women still oppressed, but not as badly as Jewish women. But the third group, way different, the Greeks, especially in their religious practice, they adored women. In fact, Greeks believed that women were more powerful than men, and in their religion, a polytheism with Greek mythology, uh, you have over here Romans oppressing women, but Greeks making gods out of women. And I'll try to say this delicately here. I'm glad the kids are mostly all gone. If not, earmuffs, mom and dad, if anybody's still in here. Um, one of the biggest reasons why women were seen as more powerful than men had to do with stories in Greek mythology and this belief that the sex drive of a man was much stronger than the drive of a woman. So Greeks thought women were more powerful because they have something that a man wants and she has control over whether he gets it or not. So I won't say anything else about that. We'll just move on. Um, last detail on this. Most Greek cities worshipped as their primary deity goddesses, which, knowing this stuff, again, I think is hugely important to understanding the New Testament. And here's one of the reasons why. Now that we have that information, we've got Jews and Romans and Greeks are the primary audiences. There are three geographic regions to where the Apostle Paul writes letters and instructions to those churches, three of them that seem to restrict uh, the roles of what women can, can do. Guess who the audience of all three of those area restrictions were? Greeks. They were the Greeks. So he was writing to the Greeks, and all three of those areas, the chief deity that was worshipped was a goddess. So we'll show a little more why that's significant in a little bit here. And when the audience, by the way, was Jewish or Roman, there was no restriction. In fact, the teaching in Jewish and Roman audiences was very much encouraging and assuming both men and women would teach and prophesy and lead. And just even leaving that open, again, is a huge statement back in that day. But the passages that do look like in the New Testament that they might limit what a woman can and can't do in a church, those things, I believe, those restrictions were a corrective to a group during a certain culture and time as they were learning a new way to live. See, the Greeks had to shift away from being, you know, the normal thing being women in worship to be domineering towards men, um, the temple prostitution being a part of that. And that was a big change to move into Christianity uh, from their goddess worshiping religions that they had come out of. Now, with the rest of our time this morning, I want to look at some of the roles that women played in the New Testament church. I'm just going to touch on four, and if we have time, I'm actually going to try my best to unpack one of those tricky passages that looks like it restricts women. So, but we'll start with um, the early church and some examples of the roles of women. 
First off, we'll hit Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Uh, in the story, what happens is Jesus has now ascended um, um, the day of Pentecost, which we uh, celebrated a couple of weeks ago, is about to happen, and the believers are waiting for this day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit's going to come. And we're told that on their way to waiting for that, the disciples would meet in an upper room. Verse 14 says, They all joined constantly together in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So it's interesting. Luke wants us to make sure we know here, women as well as men are part of this this, uh, new family waiting for the church to be born. And then the church is born, and the Holy Spirit's poured out at Pentecost, And Peter, if you know the story, the Apostle Peter gets up, makes one of the most important speeches in all of the history of the church. And it's fascinating. He chooses an Old Testament passage to interpret what people are seeing and explain it to those around. He uses an Old Testament passage. He's explaining what's happening here with the Pentecost deal. He says, Acts chapter 2, verse 16, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I think it's amazing that out of all the texts he could have used from the Old Testament and reference, he cites the promise that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, male and female, resulting in a ministry that would include both men and women without regard to gender. And that would be the signature of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And when you think about how divided men and women were in that culture, we can see that, that the idea of men and women ministering together and to each other could only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit because no other power was going to break down barriers like that. And in fact, that is what happened in the story of the early church. And, and the power of the Spirit and that kind of ministry is evidenced in the lives of several women in the early church. And we're just going to look at four of those examples from the book of Acts. The first one, Acts 21 Acts 21 verse 9 tells us about four women. They're four unmarried daughters of Philip who, they say Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Just a quick sentence there. Interesting. Why does he put that in there? And I think this is important to see. They had the ministry of prophecy. Now a quick explanation of what prophecy involves. Prophecy comes from a Greek word which means to speak the authoritative word of God. And I want to take a moment to describe this because some people would say, well, yeah, sure, yeah, women could prophesy, but that's not like, you know, teaching. They're not allowed to teach. They could just prophesy, you know, that maybe teaching is higher than prophecy. Here's the problem if somebody tries to use that to say, well, yeah, they could prophesy, but that, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that, like, (laughs) right, that prophecy is less important than teaching, that there's not teaching that happens when someone does prophesy. In fact, when we look at 1 Corinthians 14, we're all encouraged to prophesy so that, it, Paul says, so that all may be taught, all may learn, all may be encouraged. So here's the deal. When somebody prophesies, the result is learning and instruction. So there is a teaching function in prophecy, and these four women there and all through the New Testament were doing this prophecy, instruction, teaching for men and women in the early church. Let's look at another example in the 
book of Acts, we'll back up a chapter, we see the life of another powerful woman in the New Testament. Acts 18, we meet a woman by the name of Priscilla. Um, verse 18 says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. I want to pause there for just a second because the order of the names in ancient Greek literature was very significant. Whoever was named first is seen as the more influential. So, for example, this happened with Paul as well. When he um, was first converted in his early days, before he became the leader of the mission, he would be mentioned second. It would say, hey, so Barnabas and Paul went out together. But then later, once he became the leader of the missions, his name was always mentioned first. So Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and uh, Titus. So that order there mentions, and another thing, in that day, husbands were virtually always mentioned first because they had higher status. I'm glad that when we address letters, right, to people, that that's not why we do that, okay? So don't get in trouble today with writing Mr. and Mrs. or Mrs. and Mr., okay? So don't, don't go home and fight about that, but we won't go there. Um, but the, name, the one back then, the one named first, it was uh, more influential. And so with that in mind, check this out. Meanwhile... A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. Now notice this right here. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew about the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now notice here, her name is first. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So they instructed him in this, right? So notice, even though Apollos is well-versed in scripture, he's receiving authoritative instruction from a woman. And there's nothing in the text to suggest, well, she's doing it under the authority, under the authority of her husband. No, and if anything, because of the order of the names, it suggests that the husband was doing it under her leadership, which was an extraordinary thing for a woman in those days. Let's look at another example, back up another chapter here to Romans 16. Uh, Paul's honoring many people in the church, and in this passage, he really, uh, really states his appreciation for them. Let's read about a couple of them. Romans 16, I commend you to our dear sister Phoebe, a servant or a deacon, it could be translated either way, a servant of the church. I ask her, I'm sorry, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Chris Valton points out, these are remarkable words about a woman in those days. Because the standard introduction for somebody that was bearing a letter would just say, I commend to you this person. I ask you to receive them in a way that is worthy of the saints. And so what this passage likely means is that Phoebe was the one carrying this Romans letter, the book of Romans we call it now. She was carrying that letter to the church in Rome. She is the one that carried this letter, the book of Romans, to the church there. And the custom of that day was whoever was entrusted to carry that letter would also be called upon to explain anything in the letter that wasn't really clear for the people reading or hearing it. Now, have you ever studied the book of Romans, right? There's a lot in there with a lot to wonder about and questions. So, so imagine, uh, you know, being the one expected to answer, well, hey, what did Paul mean by that, right? So Paul underscores her authority, her competence, and it's a woman that's 
going to have to explain the letter to the church at Rome. Now, then now down to verse 7, at another extraordinary woman. I remember when I first learned about this verse right here, it was a huge surprise to me. Uh, greet, let me see if I can say his name, Andronesius, Andronesus and Junia, my relatives who have been in prison with me, they are outstanding among the apostles. Now, uh, the first name is a male name, but Junia is a female name. So this is a female here, and the clearest meaning of this verse is that both of these people are recognized as apostles by saying they are outstanding among the apostles. So what this means is that a woman would have had the title apostle, which was the highest leadership, title, gift, role that there was, an apostle. And interestingly enough, this has bothered some translators so much that some of them, um, a few translations anyway, have changed the spelling from Junia to Junius, which would turn it into a man's name with a masculine ending. But in all the best ancient manuscripts, it's a woman's name that's used. So just right here, we see all these things scattered through the New Testament, glimpses of, of women where extraordinary things are happening in the early church family. Very different things than what's happening in the rest of the culture. And I think these examples alone are enough to back the truth that women and men share equally in ministry roles and in teaching and in leadership. So if we were looking for the preponderance of evidence in Scripture, this alone, there's much more, but this alone makes an excellent case. And when we look at the whole of Scripture... Um, and the fact that both men and women were receiving and operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They were both teaching. They were both leading. They were both sharing in advancing the gospel. Uh, it makes that case. But, and there's a big but here. There are places, as I mentioned before, in places, letters that Paul writes to churches in the, the early days, where there are a few passages that people will try to interpret today to say, well, no, women can't lead, they can't teach, they can't be pastors, they can't be leaders, they can't be elders, they can't do it back then, not in that place, and not today, or in any place. So me, the question I think we have to ask anyway, is when it seems like scripture contradicts itself in some places by not allowing women to function in some roles, but in other places it's assumed, and they actually do, then what do we do with that disagreement? And it's not like they were two different authors with two different opinions. This is the Apostle Paul writing to different churches, and sometimes um, it's the same book where there's what seems like a disagreement. So my summary of this, and we'll see if we have time to take a shot at this. When the Apostle Paul seems like he's limiting what roles women cannot do and can do, I believe, and many scholars believe, that he's addressing a specific issue in a specific context, a problem they're having that we just don't know about because we're only reading one side of the story. He's not in those places making a policy for all churches in all times and in all places. All right, I'm going to roll the dice here. I'm going to do my best um, at addressing just one problem passage and... Um, all right, we're going to do this. All right, here we go. We're going to run through one example. Here's your Bible study for the week. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to read a long passage here, and then we're going to go back and unpack it. Paul writes this, and this is a common one that people would use to say, there's all kinds of weird anti-women stuff in here, or at least limiting things. 
He says, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Good job, Bruce. He's got that zip, right? Good job. Good job. Paul goes on, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent for Adam. This is where it gets really interesting. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. I don't know what that says to do anything, but okay. And Adam was not the one deceived, for it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But, and here's the fun one, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Clear as mud. Let's pray and go home. Amen. Now, Paul here, he gives us a number of commands in this passage. And the question is, okay, how do you apply them, right? So starting with verse 9. Like some of them we go, well, that applies, that applies. I don't know what that means. How does that apply, right? So people will go, well, that applies, so we're going to do that. But I don't know about that one, right? So here, um, look just at verse 9. I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. So everyone here, just take... A look around for a minute at the women who are here, right? Anybody have braided hair? <gasps> right? Oh, my. Any gold jewelry? Anybody have wedding rings at all, right? Um, uh, so, by the way, he says no gold, right? No pearls. So drop those in the offering basket later. We'll take care of that for you. Um, he says no expensive clothes. And expensive is relative, right? So back then a day's wage would maybe, maybe be the equivalent of like 20 bucks in a day, um, Anybody wearing an outfit that you paid more than 20 bucks with, right? So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if we're taking the Bible literally, word for word literally, and not thinking about context, how many of you are in violation of any of these up here, right? Yeah, okay, there's a confession, yeah, right? And how come when somebody comes in, we don't go, oh, you are disobeying the command of the Apostle Paul, right? We because we know that that's a cultural, a cultural thing that's going on. And I won't go in to explain it, but imagine again the temple prostitutes that are now becoming Christians and the way they've dressed and the way that they were known in the culture. So he's saying, hey, make sure there's a difference and people don't get confused and confuse you for that anymore. That's just a part of it. Now again, um, here's a little more Bible study technique stuff here. There's a key to interpreting scripture that we use here at scripture, that you or here at church, that you use at, at home. And, and it's that we have to distinguish between what are called universal principles. That's the stuff that applies in all times, in all places, right? Like, you know, do not murder. Okay, that, that one would apply. Um, or, so universal principles on the one side, and then local applications that have to do with a particular situation or culture. So we have to distinguish when we read things like this. Okay, what's a universal deal? What's a local application? And just to make sure that you you guys have these categories straight. We're going to give you a little test. We're going to, you know, kind of invite you into this here. I'm going to run through a different commands, a few different commands in scripture, and I want you to say out loud, this is audience participation here, okay? If this is a universal principle or a local application, you'll just say universal or local. So here we go. Number one, love your neighbor as yourself. So is it universal or local? Universal. Oh, you guys are so good, so smart. Okay. Um, how about the next one? 1 Corinthians 7.1 says, It is good for a man not to touch a woman. So is that universal or local? Uh, are you really that unsure? There's a few other answers, right? I'm amazed that we have any kids in church at all with that answer, right? Yeah, that's, 
local application dealing with a specific issue in their setting, right? Okay, how about Micah 6.8? Do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with your God. Is that universal or local? Universal. Very good. First Timothy 5, verse 23. Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. Is that universal or local? Universal. I heard a mixture there. <laughs> I don't know if we're just stubborn or plain dumb on this one, right? Okay. So sadly, local, right? Local would be the answer we're looking for there. So there's universal principles. There's local applications. And here's the deal. It's not always easy to tell which is which. It's not easy. And so really smart folks pray real hard and try to distinguish that and teach that. So I'm not trying to make it like sound like it's just plain as day and super easy because it's not. And that's why sincere Christians disagree over issues like this one. But my point is we have to apply cultural sensitivity to verses 9 through 15. We can't just pick that one and go, well, we're not going to do that one, but we are going to do that one. We're going to restrict women here, but it's okay for them to wear braided hair. I mean, right, we can't just decide for any particular reason which one to do and not. And again, when people just go, well, I'm just going to randomly decide which ones are convenient for me, they come up with all kinds of crazy weirdness and call it biblical. So we're going to walk through this. Um, I think one of the most striking features of this passage in verse 11, where Paul says, the first part of the phrase, let a woman learn. Just stop right there for a second. He's stating a command. Women must learn. And this is revolutionary. Like this goes against any of the backgrounds the, of the people that lived in that city that said women were not valued, their education wasn't important. So if there were Romans in the city or Jews in the city, this was a countercultural kind of thing for them to hear. Now, that wasn't as much so for the Greeks, but Paul is saying this kind of thing where we don't value women learning, that's got to stop in this new family called the church. And then he goes on to describe how women are to learn. They're to learn in all quietness and submission. And the question that we think of is, okay, in quietness and submission to whom? Right? In one theory, people will say, well, submission to their husbands. But it doesn't say that there, does it? It doesn't say that. And if Paul had said that, it would leave out unmarried women. Right? So if you weren't married, if you were a single woman in the church, how are you going to go home and learn at home if you're supposed to learn from your husband, okay? And by the way, both the men and women in that place, they were all new to faith. It's not like the men were all educated in the Jewish faith. They weren't. They didn't have the background. These were mostly Greeks, not Jews. And so neither the men or the women had any clue, right? Uh, in fact, Paul, I'm sorry, Timothy, whom Paul is writing this letter to, he learned the faith from, does anybody know, from his mother and grandmother, right? Yeah, so remember again now, this is a Greek city, the cultures for women in a worship setting to have control over men, especially as they were worshiping goddesses, because that's the culture that they grew up in, and so men would kind of naturally just fell right in line with that. So I think probably Paul here is saying that women need to have the appropriate attitude of a learner to one's teacher and to the subject matter. She needs to be submissive to the one that's teaching and submissive to the subject matter. Okay, verse 12, Paul next, he says, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. Holy cow, there's a guy that I won't name, but is, I won't name him. I won't, I was gonna, I won't. He's well-respected, loved by many people, probably people here have his books at home. He writes some really good stuff, but he uh, will even say women should not be police officers because that would be exerting authority over a man. I mean, he recently said this, and uh, this is someone who's a well-known pastor. 
um, taking this verse to mean that. Now, here's a couple observations about this verse. When Paul says, I do not permit, okay, Greek nerd out with me for a minute here, just a little linguistics, it's in the present tense. And so you could translate this, I am not currently permitting a woman to teach. And that's one of the ways that present tense gets used to talk about a current condition, okay? And so in this, sorry about the Greek nerdism here. Um, in this case, Paul would be saying that a woman must learn before they can teach, but since they haven't learned yet, of course they can't teach yet, right? And when he goes on, when he says to have authority over a man, he doesn't use the word in that authority. It's not the normal Greek word that gets used in the New Testament for authority. He uses a Greek word that only gets used one time, and uh, it's the only time in Scripture they use. And so this is one of those places people debate about this. But the most agreed upon use of that authority word is the kind of authority that would, would try to dominate or control. And so if that could be more broadly agreed on, which many do agree, um, I do not permit a woman to exert the kind of authority that seeks to dominate or control a man. So most likely, Paul, in this section, he's not permanently in all places um, forbidding women teachers. He's just warning people, especially in these Greek cities, hey, don't try to usurp the teacher's place. Don't try to correct and disrupt and take control before, it is, before you even understand what it is you're trying to learn about, right? And again, remember, they were Greeks, and unlike the Romans and the Jews, in that culture, women had status actually over men. Women were dominant oftentimes over men in Greek culture, and especially in their worship, because goddesses were worshipped by these people. Before they came to Christ, they worshipped goddesses. But now they're following Jesus, so Paul's offering a corrective to them in their culture, in their day. So that authority word probably helps us see that Paul is warning against, like, hey, it's not just about teaching, but the kind of teaching that seeks to dominate and control. And now here's the really fun one. Um, <clears throat> verses 13 and 14... We really do need to do like an eight-week Bible study on all this stuff. It'd be really fun. <clears throat> In an evening, not on a Sunday morning. Don't worry, yeah. Those of us that like this kind of stuff. Okay, so verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. For Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Paul takes us back to the creation account. But he's not saying here. He's not saying that women are more to blame so that, therefore, all women should be more limited in function because they're the ones to blame. Because even in Romans uh, chapter 5, Paul says that sin entered the world not through a woman but through a man. Right? It entered the world through a man. So he's not just blanketing and piling all the blame on women. I think he's saying that the woman in the garden that she didn't get the first-hand teaching, like God had taught Adam, hey, don't eat from that tree. And then she shows up and she hears it from Adam, so she didn't have the first-hand teaching about the prohibition of the tree from God, but Adam did. Like, Adam had first-hand teaching, and so maybe she was more vulnerable because she hadn't had that first-hand teaching. So therefore, similarly, there were women in this city. They hadn't learned about the faith yet. And so it was probably normal for women in that city to do a lot of the leading. But some of the women hadn't received that direct teaching yet, so they weren't ready to become teachers themselves yet. So Paul's saying, I'm not currently permitting, because they hadn't had the firsthand deeper instruction. Which, by the way, I think is a really good universal principle there. I think it's a good idea for anyone um, 
to not aspire to teach when they haven't yet first learned, right? So until we've learned, let's not go off teaching. Finally, um, in this text, verse 15, and this is an obscure one. How many have loved this verse in your past? Um, Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in love, faith, holiness with propriety. Now, what in the world? (laughs) Anybody ever wonder what that means? Yeah, I've got just one take on it here. And again, we have to remember the context of the people that are reading the letter. Now, not far from the city that they were in, uh, Lystra, was the city of Ephesus. Not far away, the patron god was worshipped. It was a goddess named Artemis. And Artemis was the goddess of fertility and childbirth. And so it was very common in that day to offer sacrifices and to worship the goddess Artemis if you were pregnant. Uh, So child mortality and the death of mothers in childbirth, very scary, very common. And so oftentimes, women of means would actually travel from wherever they were to get to Ephesus just to sacrifice and give birth in the hopes that they would raise the odds of survival and that, that Artemis would save them and save their baby in childbirth. Okay, now with that important context that they all would have known, right, They would have all known about that, and most of the women probably would have participated in that. Now doesn't this verse read a whole lot differently? Like Paul's not encouraging, or he is encouraging them. Hey, you don't have to revert to the worship of the goddess when you're pregnant. Don't don't be afraid and offer sacrifices or worship this false god in hopes that, that you and your baby will make it through the perils of childbirth. Instead, he's reminding them, trust in Jesus. God will be with you. God is the one who can help you and save you while you are giving birth. So, I mean, doesn't even just that little piece of information bring a little bit of clarity to that, to that verse there? All right, now we're going to land the plane. We're going to look at one final passage here. Um, Galatians 3.28, I mentioned in the beginning here, and this is what we're going to wrap up with. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think that there's no accident here that Galatians 3.28 is worded the way that it is. And when you set it up against this dramatic backdrop that we mentioned last week, um, there was a prayer in Paul's day. It's found in lots of different sources um, that every morning Jewish males would wake up and they would pray. Blessed art, blessed art thou, O God, for you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. This is a real prayer that would get prayed. And Paul, the Apostle Paul himself, was probably brought up to say that prayer. But in Christ, God created a new thing, a family called the church, where all could participate freely. And so that old prayer was not valid anymore, right? And so he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. And of course, there were huge conflicts in the early church about the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And many people still thought being Jewish was superior. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Old ethnic divisions are torn down. When people came to Christ, they were still Jewish or still Gentile. But those distinctions were irrelevant in their participation in the life of the church, in the family of God. And then the next line, Paul says, neither slave nor free. And friends, that was a huge debate in the church for 1,800 plus years. Like people would point to the scripture and say, hey, yep, it says slave, obey your masters. 
But Paul is saying here, no, in Christ there's no distinctions. Those are gone when it comes to belonging in the church, in the family of God. And then he has this staggering third pair, neither male nor female. And he's saying when someone's in Christ, whether they're male or female is no longer the most important thing about them. Of course we all still remain male and female. But the difference is irrelevant to our full participation in, in the life of the church and in the family of God. So that old prayer, it's not valid anymore because God's plan and purpose is for us to know oneness, to be a family together. And friends, it took 1,800 years to get the there is no slave thing right and to bring freedom. Let's not take another 1,800 years to get it right on the freedom for the full participation of women in the church. Amen? Now, I want to say one more thing as I, as I close here. Um, as you know, a lot of people disagree on this issue. And I want to honor those churches because most of, for some reason in Arizona, especially most of the larger churches, that's their, that's their stance and it's out of a good heart and their understanding. And I want to be honorable towards that. But I do have to say this. I am really glad to be at this church. I look at our church and this church... Um, I try to think about where our church would be if it was not for the, the community of men and women working and serving together. I think of, I think of Stacy Heimkees on our elder board leading our church, serving the people of hope in so many ways for so many years as an elder, an official role somewhere, a place that she's gifted. Friends, we would not be who we are today without her. And I'm glad that I get to benefit from her leadership and the leadership that she brings. Or Lily King Cisneros, who was up here earlier. She's an excellent leader. She's an excellent, excellent elder here at Hope. She has wisdom beyond her years. She is faithful and demonstrates servant leadership to each and every one of us here at Hope. And I personally, I know and believe that Stacy and Lily, as a part of our elder team, I believe that there have been times here at Hope where, where their voices and wisdom um, where we've been protected, that, that disasters have been avoided, um, that, that division has been prevented, that the evil one has been thwarted as a direct result of their leadership as elders on that team serving our church. And I am so grateful, so grateful. I think of um, Sharon Gregory in our children's ministry, new to the team here. She's giving excellent care and leadership to both men and women on that team. Men and women who are serving and leading as well as our children. And they're loving and serving and teaching our kids to follow Jesus. And I'm glad that we get to have her here as a leader and a pastor at our church. And I think of the times that, that God has used the teaching gifts of, of women like Pastor Yvonne Devon here, who is a part of our church but serves on the Covenant's national leadership area. And through her... Um, teaching and conversations we've had, she, I've felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit, something I need to address or change, or there's been a challenge for me to grow, or how she's assured me of God's goodness. I mean, those are just a few of the women that I'm in close contact with, our elders and, and, and some of our staff. And there are dozens of others in this room right here. So many of you who are women who serve with the gifts that God has given you and we here at Hope would not be who we are if you didn't serve and love and lead the way you do. So I'm, yeah, yeah, yes, to our women, yeah. 
And I know there's a lot of great churches around, so I'm grateful that I get to be a part of this one because my life would be immensely poorer if I was not a part of a community where we're trying to live as a church family where in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? All right, I have run us out of time for our closing song, so let's stand for closing prayer. Thank you guys for slogging through this material. I promise next week will not be as, as uh, long. Did I promise that on a recording? Yeah, I just did. So the band, go ahead and come. and they'll...